I hope that this will show is how rape was really a hidden in prudery and shame and and so forth, and the victim would never come forward. Still, only about 25% come forward. But I want to show how the rape movement was very important to women and to nurses and how many nurses were part of the uh, what they call the consciousness raising groups where women would go and, and they'd sit and they'd talk about things that they never had talked about before, one of which was rape and incest. Both of those two topics were important. Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Rosa Donato, And I'm Marion Leary. And you're listening to Amplify Nursing, a Penn Nursing podcast supported by the Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Amplify Nursing features nurses who are leading the way in science, policy, and innovation. Our guests defy stereotypes, define practice, and disrupt convention. We highlight the breadth and depth of nursing influence on society by amplifying nurses who are pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers to build a new paradigm. Today on Amplify Nursing, we talk with Dr. Ann Burgess. For the past 50 years, Dr. Burgess has been tirelessly working for victims of violent crime. Her initial research, studying rape victims in 1960s Boston, brought her to the attention of the FBI and led to a decades-long partnership profiling violent criminals and learning how best to help victims. Whether in her role as a researcher and educator at Boston College or as the basis for the fictional TV character Dr. Wendy Carr on the Netflix series Mindhunter, Dr. Burgess's legacy of advocating for victims continues to grow. Today, we talk with her about her experiences working with the FBI, the value of nursing research, and her upcoming book, Shattering Silence. So, Anne, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to speak with us today. Oh, you're very welcome. Why don't you start by telling us what brought you into your area of study? Okay, uh, I was a new assistant professor at Boston College, and I was kind of uh, interested in healthcare issues. And one of the other new assistant professors, Linda Lytle Holmstrom, in the sociology department, was looking around for someone to help her with a study that she wanted to do. And so she approached me and asked if uh, she actually had three separate projects that she was going to turn her attention to, and one of them was on rape. And since I knew nothing about that at that particular time, I said, well, maybe I could help her because she was having difficulty finding rape victims and she wanted to talk with them. So that really was the impetus for me to join forces with another academic who told me at the time, if I wanted to stay in academe, you had to publish. So I thought, well, I guess I'll have to publish. So that was kind of it. I was able to get access into the Boston City Hospital Emergency Ward because that my former psychiatric nursing professor Ann Hargraves had just come over there as executive director of nursing. And my point here is the value of keeping social networks and professional networks really paid off for me in, in as far as that went. She opened the door in terms of giving us access to seeing rape victims. And basically, we set up a project. We went through their IRB, and it was set that every time 
a victim would come into the emergency ward, they would call us. And that was the start of my work with rape victims. Wow. Did you know what you were getting yourself into when you... Absolutely not. <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. I can remember three months into the project saying to the lender, how long do we keep doing this? Because we were getting a lot of victims. Uh, we ended up getting 146 between wow. the ages of three and 73. And uh, at the time, I didn't realize it, but she thought it would be good to get a full year because in the literature, they said that there was a kind of seasonal aspect to rape victims. And that made sense. You obviously get more perhaps in the better weather than in the dead of winter, so to speak. So we went a mm -hmm. full year and saw every single victim that came into Boston City Hospital. And it was a good sight because the Boston Police Department would bring all of their victims there because they knew that they had a, uh, a, a, a way to examine them, et cetera, et cetera. So that was 146. That was a sample. Basically, we realized that not all persons coming in had the same symptoms, and that set us into motion to talk about a, um, a sexual trauma in terms of three types, one, of course, being rape trauma, which was the more one that was picked up the most. But we also saw children, and the, their symptoms were very different from the adults, and they were not threatened with their life. They were not uh, forced into the act. There were a lot of differences. And then we had what we call sex stress, where something sexual had happened, but it was not either coerced or was not either forced. So that's really, really interesting. And you were the first... Uh, researchers who were really looking at this at the time. Yeah, that's right. I think there were three little articles in the uh, healthcare literature, if you will, and they were kind of anecdotal, and they mm. were just uh, talking about rape, and, and but not in any specific way. So we really had the first literature that we felt had some basic methodology to it. And, uh, of course, Rape Trauma Syndrome was one of the papers that was published. I got published into American Journal of Psychiatry, which I mm -hmm. think was important at the time because it was a – well, there were actually two articles that were early published that had important uh, implications. One was Rape Trauma in American Journal of Psychiatry, which was our second major paper. But the first one we put uh, into American Journal of Nursing – and that was responsible for uh, calling to attention the FBI Behavioral Science Unit. So I, I always felt that both articles were critical to my uh, my staying in that in that particular research field and to getting some widespread attention to the to the problem. Yeah. So your article was picked up by the FBI, and what happened after that? Well, that was interesting because it was not. It was picked up by a nurse police officer who was doing uh, sitting in on a road project that Roy Hazelwood and had been out in Los Angeles doing a hostage negotiation lecture, and he happened to mention that he was going to have to teach rape investigation of rape, and he didn't know much about it and happened to mention to this group that was sitting there, anybody know anything about rape? And Rita Connect, who was a uh, police officer, juvenile division, 
was also a registered nurse and had been working that weekend in the emergency room and saw our article on the rape victim in the emergency uh, ward. That was the very first article that Linda and I published. So she called that into Roy Hazelwood out of FBI Academy and said, why don't you look her up? She's on the East Coast. And he did, and he invited me down, and I started lecturing to the FBI agents on rape, victim, rape investigation, rape victimology. That was a professional contact, which I never knew Rita until I kept watching for her. And one time at one of the Academy meetings, had the chance to meet her and to thank her. Uh, I don't think it ever would have happened without her mentioning our article. It is really amazing the way people we don't even know can have such a profound influence on where we yeah. go in life. Right, but it's also the power of publication. Uh, that's the yeah. other thing. American Journal of Nursing was sent out to, I guess, everybody at that time. And so I owe a debt to them. And, of course, American Journal of Psychiatry picked up the rape trauma. So not right. only social network, but publication. That's why I always pushed for nurses to publish. And, of course, Penn does that also. And, and then I went to Penn and was able to uh, publish more articles, of course, in, in other fields, other of my research fields. So you started lecturing for the FBI on rape, trauma, and investigation. How yeah. did things progress from there? Well, we're a progressive. They, at the same time, were developing their profiling. This was the start of the uh, criminal profiling. But also, they had gotten approval for doing this, uh, in the going into prisons and interviewing criminals. Bob Ressler was, was really responsible for this. He had said when he had the assignment of teaching criminal psychology, he said, I've only interrogated offenders. I've never interviewed them for, uh, for research purposes, so to speak. So he wanted to get permission and did receive permission to do the uh, serial killer study. But at the time, William Webster was the head of the FBI and told Bob at, over a, at a luncheon meeting where they were kind of showcasing this new study, and he said, remember, no shoebox research. This has to be top drawer. And that's why they called. I was down at the academy at the time teaching for Roy and had the chance to talk more with Ressler. And John Douglas had just joined the unit. And that's where I said your methodology is absolutely critical. To get the findings into good journals, you have to have strong methodology. And so I was brought in for that purpose of setting up the uh, methodology. And we had a very small grant from the Department of Justice. It was only $60,000. Can you believe wow. that this study was done on 60000 Yeah. And it was to uh, pay a, my little research team up here at Boston City Hospital. And mm -hmm. so the age, we came up with a 57-page survey that the agents had to fill out but they had access to all the records, plus they, of course, interviewed the serial killers. And so we uh, entered the data, ran the data, and then we published the book on sexual homicide, plus a whole lot of articles that went into the um, law enforcement bulletin. They had their own journal, so we distributed the information got out that way, plus the book. 
and that was the uh, uh, and then that was the profiling. So our project really looked at not only to publish the data from the serial killer study, but to try to uh, articulate, if you will, this whole profiling process that they were entering into, and it was fascinating. They would spread out all of these crime scene photos on a big table, and the agents would sit around and they'd start talking about, well, what was the age of this offender? Where did he live? Uh, what might his work be? And that type of profile helped take it back to the police departments, and then they could narrow down their suspects. So it was really a suspect reduction piece that they went through. It kind of got a bad name initially. People thought, well, they were going after, you know, John Smith or Harry Jones or something like that. No, it was Mm -hmm. to reduce the number of suspects by profiling the offender from crime scene, which, of course, was all victimology. That's where the victimology came in because that's all they had. That's a really interesting way to go about it. Did Were there any other nurses aside from your team on this or any other healthcare providers? Uh, well, the FBI had some nurses that were then FBI agents. Uh, mm-hmm. Candace DeLong, I remember, was a psych nurse that I later met and uh, mm-hmm. helped her. Or I, I helped her, she helped me, whatever, on child cases. They didn't have anybody at the FBI that was really uh, – good with interviewing children. So we had a couple of serious uh, child murder cases. One in particular, there was a child that survived and got away from the offender. I went in with Candace and we interviewed her to get, see if we could get more information on the offender and get a uh, composite done. So to answer your question, there were some, but they would have been FBI agents. I see. So and later, only... where, where nurses became absolutely essential and sprung the whole movement of a sexual assault nurse examiner, the saints really took over. Right. And were excellent. And to this day have been very instrumental in the collection of evidence from the victim. And that then helps the um, if they can get DNA or whatever they get in the cases, whether it's criminal case or whether it's a uh, civil case. Right. Yeah, that's a position that is you really have to be highly skilled to do something like that when you're working with someone who just suffered a terrible trauma. Right. You have to have both the interviewing skills, uh, but this is what nurses are good at. So so it was unnatural for them. And they also have to stay very much up on the latest DNA. I, I'm doing a case right now with one of the nurses out of uh, Virginia who realized they were, it was just at the time, the case maybe five, maybe 10 years ago, and touch DNA was just coming in. Virginia had not passed the requirement for SANES to take touch DNA. But uh, this one case came in, they realized, the nurse realized that the uh, offender had used a condom, so there was not going to be DNA, but did take touch DNA uh, prints. And that helped immensely in uh, getting, the, getting the offender. So when you say touch DNA, you're, you're literally talking about fingerprints on a person? Correct. Wow. I didn't realize that was a possibility. Yeah, 
you know, the Torres case uh, out of Virginia, uh, this was one that was finally able to be tied to uh, the child murder case I had worked on and to a um, petty officer murder that had been unsolved for years. So, uh, What other innovations um, have you seen come down the line? I mean, your career has been so extraordinary. I can imagine that there you've seen a lot of things come, come about. Well, I think uh, some of the innovations have come. One of the early things that Linda Holmstrom and I tried to do is to dispel the myth so much, and that always happens in any field, that you find that people are operating by kind of what people think, you know, and, and what they kind of pass down as clinical wisdom, but it's not mm-hmm. scientific. So we were able to, one of the papers we wrote was signs and symptoms of sexual trauma. So we could help people, begin nurses, as well as the mental health community, to separate out the symptoms and treat it. So we always said, it's like pneumonia. You can have viral pneumonia, you can have bacterial, and if you don't use the right technique to deal with it, it's not going to be effective. So we tried to make that analogy, especially in the treatment of sexual trauma. And, of course, we Mm -hmm. found out that it depended on the relationship between the offender and the victim. It depended on a lot of other things. We, uh, the profiling was really important because it, we realized that so many rapes, especially if there was no car involved, that you want to look in about a one-mile radius and you can find your offender because he's walked there. Or One case we had, he took a bicycle. Uh, we knew that, so that became important. So it was really better understanding the whole dynamics of the scenario that uh, happened, and you had to get it from the victim. Nurses we trained were really good at that. Psych nurses helped with the interpretation of offender behavior Mm -hmm. at the crime scene. One of the areas I'm in now is on dismemberment, and everybody says, ooh, what a a, a ghastly topic, and it is. But the research question is, why does somebody dismember the body when they've already killed them? What more does that do? What does that answer? And it speaks more to what's going on, obviously, with the offender. And that Mm. can help in terms of dangerousness and and trying to explain things in court. It isn't always – sometimes it's just practical to get rid of a body. Other times it has everything to do with the fantasy that's going on. So um, uh, that's, uh, as I said, that's one of the areas I'm looking at now to look at a hundred cases where the victim was just murdered and then a hundred cases where the victim had more going on. And there's a whole variety of ways they dismember the body. I went back to our 36 serial killers and found to my surprise that over half of them had dismembered the body. And I had, I mean, we, I had helped write an article on murder and mutilation, but it just mm-hmm. kind of sat there. It was just kind of a chapter in a book. It, it, it never got much more attention than that. So we're resurrecting that to help people in the field. So I guess to answer your question, a lot depends on how much you get into the actual data. And the other picture I'd make is we had both quantitative and qualitative Quantitative often doesn't give you the details that you need, and it's right. the uh, qualitative that's so rich and uh, helpful, certainly in in the field of crime. Speaking of things getting a lot of attention, your uh, they based this character in the Netflix series Mindhunter on you. 
Yes. So Dr. How, Wendy how, Carr. You want to? Yeah. You can call me Dr. Wendy Carr. You're having an interview <laughs> with Dr. Wendy Carr. <laughs> how did? Uh, what did you think of that when it first came up? Well, I was interested, of course, in how they portrayed. Not not so much how they portrayed me, because I quickly realized that also on uh, Bob Ressler and John Douglas, they they Hollywooded it, as uh, Douglas would say. They made made the characters into where they thought they might get a wider audience, and they certainly did that with my character. But I think the important thing is I wanted to know how accurate they were. Were they as accurate with Ed Kemper, with um, Monty Rissell? with the Jerome Brutus, with all of the, if you will, the uh, the main characters in the sexual homicide study. So mm-hmm. I found they were pretty accurate. What they also did that I think helped the first episode of uh, Mindhunter was they, they added some interesting things about how, for example, in uh, Brutus, who's the shoe guy, how he would take control and try to, and was effectively portrayed that way as holding control over the agents, and yet how they then cut that very quickly because they had the actual records and they knew exactly what had been said and how the body had been treated so that they could cut through uh, Brutus and, and his attempting to manipulate them. So those are all kind of interesting things. Wendy Carr, I think, played the role as best she could, taking it from the book as, um, uh, you know, the methodology and are you really getting it. But they've they've uh, expanded her role, I think, far more than was ever possible. But, but the one thing that was actually very accurate is their first the first episode where they come to Boston to meet with me, and they uh-huh. did. And they're telling me about what they're finding, and she's and she's saying, and and I did say this. I actually did say, you if you do it right, you've got a book. And they did. They got Mindhunter. <laughs> Bob Ressler got um, uh, his own book. All of the agents pretty much wrote their own books. And so I'm going to write wow. my own book, right? <laughs> nice. So tell us about the book you're going to write. Yeah, the book, uh, the working title is Shattering Silence. Okay. What I hope that this will show is how rape was really a hidden intrudery and shame and and so forth, and the victim would never come forward. Still, only about 25% come forward. But I want to show how the rape movement was very important to women and to nurses and how many nurses were part of the uh, what they call the consciousness raising groups where women would go and, and they'd sit and they'd talk about things that they never had talked about before, one of which was rape and incest. Both of those two topics were important. And then I want to show how the offender, that it was not only looking at the victim but moving to the offender, and how the advances over time, over the decades, have made a difference. And one of the cases that always, one of the early cases back when I was I don't even, uh, back in high school, I guess, was the Kitty Genovese case. And that was, I always was fascinated with that. And that was one where bystander attention was played up, that people had heard Kitty, who was being murdered, raped and murdered, and nobody came to her defense. That was in, in Queens, New York. And how when they finally, and I really looked into the case, he was a serial rape murderer. He had stalked her. He had done many of the things that we now write about. So way back, those 
offenders were roaming the streets and getting away with their crimes. And in fact, the he was jury uh, wanted death for him, gave him a death sentence, and the judge said, "Oh no, he's got mental health problems, so we'll just let him stay in prison." So you, all of those things kind of play out as they do nowadays in uh, in our court system. So that's what the book is going to do. I go through my cases. I write on the victims, and I uh, do many of the cases, Kemper and Russell and all that, to show from my perspective how I saw the cases. How do you, after doing this for all these years, how do you compartmentalize seeing all these cases? Well, and, we, we do that in nursing. Uh, from yeah. the very beginning, you have to look and, and help with terrible situations where you know people are dying or they have something or whatever, but your job is to do the best you can and uh, help them. In in the case of crime victims, of course, if there is a, a there are a lot of crime victims that survive, and so I felt that helping to uh, help other professionals deal with them was important. So it, I guess it gets down to trying to move the the whole agenda forward. How do we help not only patients, but in my case, we help victims. We call them victims or survivors. And that you're always finding new things and adding to the uh, that's a, to the dimension. And that's a role for academe. I've always been in academe. So mm. not only a nurse, but in academe. And, and that just uh, and teaching to students, uh, have them carry on. So that, I guess, is just something that I think is in most academics, and uh, my area just happens to be crime victims. I think the, uh, to answer your question, I think the child murder victims are, are probably the toughest uh, to have to deal with. And, uh, and and cases affect you. Uh, there's no way around it. Cases affect you. Yeah. yeah. So you do have to compartmentalize. So how would you, what would you do to encourage other nurses who are interested in, in this kind of nursing? I would encourage them to really get into a case, see if all of the questions have been answered, uh, to see what you can learn from the case that you can then put into your own practice. And it's, the word has to spread. Uh, the word has for I think that the other thing I thought you were going to say is the Me Too movement, that we're really in a very different era, aren't we, where yeah. cases that have been way happened a long time ago are now getting attention. It's kind of like the sexual homicide study. Whoever thought that, the, thank heavens I kept all my notes and everything so I can go back, but whoever thought that something I did decades ago would then all of a sudden be on the uh, front burner and uh, victims are doing this also. They're coming forward, and we're going to be watching pretty important cases. Do you think we will, that, that Me Too, I mean, obviously it's encouraging people to come forward and look at things that have happened a long time ago, but has the, the types and kind of cases that you see changed since that happened? Uh, have they changed? The, um, the I don't see the cases basically changing. What I see changing is the way people are now feeling able to bring forward a case. And I need to say, don't forget, not all cases are perceived in the same way that uh, the, the Me Too, the one that's uh, coming up very shortly, will be mm -hmm. fascinating to watch because the defense lawyer 
claims absolutely that this happened, but she said that the context is going to be important on the Mm -hmm. Harvey uh, Weinstein case. So that will be important to see how a jury sees it, whether they will see it the same way. But that's what court is all about. That's what a legal – you've got to have somebody on one side and somebody on the other. And so how convincing can each side be for the final verdict? And we'll see how far that this has come. But as I said, you've got to be careful that – some of the cases will be perceived by the victim in a certain way, but will not be, uh, and this is where your false accusation or, you know, what are they trying to do in this uh, will be, I'm sure, front and center as a major mm-hmm. issue to discuss. So let me let me ask you this. Do you also think that there is a different cultural connotation to things that happened prior to me too being so vocal. And I mean, Harvey Weinstein is a great example. Um, I mean, does he even think he did anything wrong? Like it, it seems to me that, um, you know, people in power leveraging whatever they want to get something from someone who doesn't have the power is kind of like how it's been since the dawn of time. So, but it's only now that that women are kind of speaking up and saying, this has never been an, an okay thing to do. Right. Um, in fact, we could look at a case right out of your own backyard of Philadelphia mm-hmm. with the yeah. uh, Bill Cosby case. Right. And what you have in both of those cases, don't forget, are is a pattern. And a mm-hmm. pattern can be quite convincing. If you can get, but the pattern, the use of pattern is very difficult in the legal sense because you're to protect the defendant he he has the right not to bring up any past crimes necessarily so i've done a number of pattern testimony where uh the judge has listened in chamber or out of the view of the jury as to whether there's enough evidence for pattern and Mm -hmm. i think that's what they will I think do. I, I I don't have any other information on the Harvey Weinstein case, but certainly they had that in the Bill Cosby case, where the first time around they didn't use pattern, second time around they did. And people think very differently if you see pattern, right? Well, right. in in nursing we see pattern, right? Uh, when people right. in in healthcare and so forth. So when you see the same thing over and over, you have to begin to say. Uh, how how can you intervene if you're talking about a, a nursing situation? But in the legal situation, if you can show pattern, that is going to affect the jury, right? So, and I I had seen I had seen the, uh, the the lead victim in the Cosby case, so I I followed that very carefully to see whether it, how was how it going to come out. And I think you see that. And interestingly enough, what the victim in that case is doing is coming up with. A way a nonprofit situ- um, foundation to try to help other women that are faced with legal issues. She's taking it from the legal standpoint. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. That's fantastic to take something that yeah. you know happened to you and and try and make it better for other people. Yeah, and other and victims are starting to do that. I just I did a case where the victim was 95 years old. A man had broken into the nursing home through her sliding door that didn't have a good, um, whatever, security, and had Uh raped her. She screamed out, 
and a nurse came and saw witness the man going back out the window or out the Uh door. She goes, what does she do? But she goes into the dining room shortly after that for, I don't know, uh, after they took her to the hospital and so forth. Tells everybody. She tells everybody that she was raped. You wouldn't have seen that 30 years ago. And when when they said, why are you doing this? Because the nursing home was shocked, right? And she right. said, I don't want this to happen to anybody else. Right. How about that? Yeah. You, As I said, you wouldn't see that now uh, back then. They would be, right. oh, I can't tell anybody. I'm so ashamed. This was horrible. Not that she didn't feel all those things. Right. But she didn't want it to happen to somebody else. Yes. And I think that also speaks a little bit to the cultural shift. I feel like yes, so many very much. years ago, people would not have been willing to hear it. There would have been a That's million right. reasons why. I mean, it's kind of hard to defend a ninety-year-five-year-old lady in a nursing home in the middle of the night. But in general, um, you know, there's always a, an excuse and a reason why something right. happened to the victim. Well, you know what the offender said. He was heard saying. You better lock your door next time as he leaves. And they never got this guy. I, I can't believe they didn't get him. but And they didn't profile him, that's for sure. But uh, uh, talk. Of, uh, but that would be said, I had that in one of the victims of, uh, in, in my first, the first study we did. That she opened the door. She was expecting a visitor. Um, and the, these three men rushed in and said they'd been knocking on doors along the apartment area and said, uh, you shouldn't have opened your door. You should have kept it locked. Wow. So those only talk about making the, you know, really giving it to the victim in terms of making her feel even worse. Right. That is done. That is done. Right. Well, that almost seems like part of the strategy, right? If you give somebody an excuse not to tell anyone. Absolutely. Absolutely mm-hmm. right. Yeah. And was the jury going to say, well, maybe she should have had her door locked. <laughs> she was expecting a visitor. No, it was right. a, this was two o'clock in the afternoon. Right. Incredible. So the blame the victim lives on, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. I feel like it's, we're a long way from getting rid of that completely, for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. So. What do you see for the future of nursing in in this area of research moving forward? Well, I see nursing has really taken the the ball and is running with it. I think that uh, sexual assault nurse examiners are firmly entrenched. Everybody knows what they are, and uh, they they have to take them to the hospital that has it. So that's a real plus. And I Mm -hmm. think that we're seeing more nurses testifying in court. I'm not asked as often as I was in the beginning, you're just a nurse. You know, they will say, well, you're not a psychiatrist, you're not a psychologist, you're just a nurse. In fact, I was going wow. to use that as my opener in my book, but uh, we decided against it. But I, that doesn't, it still is. There are still people that uh, try to, uh, in, in any way, demean our our profession right. uh, if, in court. I only mean it in court. But uh, maybe some will say, well, that's their job. I don't think it works with juries. Most juries have a nurse in their family somewhere, right? Right. Oh, I, I agree with you. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I think the more that we can get nurses that will get into court and speak up and have people recognize their expertise and their knowledge, all of that is a plus. I think we only are going to move forward. I think it's a really a important time for nursing and uh, in all fields, not just in in the uh, in the uh, crime field, but certainly it's making wonderful progress. Yeah. So we, we've talked about your incredibly um, fascinating career. Where did you actually, when you graduated from nursing school, what did you actually start doing first? When I graduated from nursing school, I worked in the, uh, I worked a little local hospital, Newton Wellesley Hospital mm-hmm. in the obstetric unit. That just happened to be, I only was going to be able to work for the summer, and that was their only opening. So. <laughs> that was uh, that's where I was, but then I went right on to graduate school, and uh, oh. that's where my psych background uh, came in. I, I got my master's in psych, and then I worked in a state hospital, which turned out to be very helpful because I really got this is back in a time when there wasn't a lot of medication out there, so we really had to work with patients and I would interview one thing I did do I think that I was helpful for students is I would we would have our, our little meeting I'd bring a patient in and we talked to him so he could tell us or she could tell us about their the illness because it wasn't so they weren't so medicated and then I went right on for my doctorate and then got over to Boston College so my I've been primarily in the um, in the psychiatric field I always had a private practice so that I didn't only see crime victims. I would see other other mental health issues that people were struggling with. Right. So, yeah, I, I always find that an interesting, um, what, talking to people, an, an interesting way to go. Like you started here in obstetrics mm-hmm. helping deliver babies, and you ended mm-hmm. up here. Right, uh, right. And the skills, <laughs> the skills you learn along the way to get you there. <laughs> yeah, but actually the obstetrics helped because uh, I did a project with the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children when they were having such a problem with infant abductions out of hospitals. Mm-hmm. And these uh, women, these are all female offenders, would dress up in scrubs and walk in and say, I need to take your baby for a picture or for something and walk out with the baby. Wow. So, yeah, so uh, we, uh, that was out, I'll tell you, that project was very instrumental because they went out and educated all of the obstetric units and they, what they call hardened the target. So they made it very difficult and uh, those abductions went way down from hospitals. Now they did still have them in other places. People are still stealing babies. And yeah. not only that, but they're going after them when they're pregnant. The fetal abductions are horrible. So yeah. they've had about 20 of those. Wow. So there's always something to study and always something to understand and then to teach it to our colleagues. Well, Anne, is there anything else that you would like to talk about? Before no, we... um, just have them watch for the book, Shattering Silence, see if we can, it will be a story of nursing putting as much nursing and what I learned in my career uh, out there through case studies to uh, help nurses move it on and to speak for nursing. I want nursing to be very, very prominent in the book. 
Um, so when is the book coming out? When are you expecting a release? Hope, hopefully it will be end of the year. Uh, okay. I hope. And then we already have a production group that wants to put it into a um, series, a documentary wow. series. So, yeah, that will be really good for nursing. Yeah, that so watch for it. <laughs> I will. Okay. And I can't wait to see it. Oh, and thank you so much. It was a delight to speak Good. with you today. I really appreciate well, thank, that. My, my, my pleasure. Thank you so much yourself. Hello, Marion. Hey, Angela. How's it going? It's amazing. So we just had a fabulous conversation with Ann Burgess, who is a researcher and forensic nurse out of Boston College who has had an incredibly amazing career. Right? There are not too many nurses who can say they have a Netflix show based off of the work that they've done over their lifetime. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, especially in, in academia. And as Anne mentioned, as far as she's concerned, it all kicked off from a paper that she published. Yeah, it just goes to show in academia we talk about publishing is um, all about promotion. Well, it's not all about promotion, but there's a lot of emphasis on publish or perish Mm -hmm. um, so that you can get promoted, get tenure, which is all fine and good. Um, But there's another side to it that I think people don't really um, think about as often, and that really is about the science communication component, getting the work out to people outside of the Uh, ivory tower outside of academia so that they can also see what incredible work we're doing. And, you know, she published the work she was doing and someone saw that work, mentioned it again outside of the academic um, walls, and then the FBI heard about it. And this is what really kicked off her career of now teaching FBI agents, becoming an international expert in um, victimology, and really set her down this path. It's, it's fascinating to see how all that plays out. Yeah. Yeah, it really was fascinating. She had some really interesting ideas on Me Too, on how the culture has changed surrounding victims, and um, what nurses can do moving forward. Amplify Nursing is hosted by Dr. Angela Rosa DiDonato and Marion Leary and produced by the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing, with special thanks to our Department of Information Technology Services for their assistance. Music for the podcast was created by Harper Leary. The podcast is made possible by the Krista and Rich Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Follow us on Twitter at Penn Nursing. Until next time, keep pushing over, under, around, and through. We want to thank you for listening to the Amplify Nursing Podcast and remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. And if you can, please do us a solid and rate and review us as well. It will go a long way in amplifying our episodes.